Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. So how's your week going so far, Alex? Uh, I got uh, zero hours of sleep last night, and I'm doing the best in my house. Really? Yeah. So somebody's having negative hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, not a good look over here. So uh, why are you not able to sleep? Because uh, of kid? Uh, everyone's effed up over this whole thing oh really yeah uh i'm at my most peaceful when i'm here feeling like i'm scared to breathe and holding my pee because i don't want to go to the bathroom (laughs) i completely that's that's, this is my happy place i completely disinfected the bathroom yesterday but that's up to you my friend i'm eyeing eyeing this water bottle in the side in the corner of my room (laughs) keep in mind keep keep in mind a legally blind person did clean the bathroom so you know keep keep that in mind when you're considering how clean the bathroom is right now. I'm actually getting, this is horrible, but uh, so I'm not sleeping with my girly because we're both afraid that one of us might have it, uh, even though neither of us, well, Laura has a couple of symptoms, but you know, we're both kind of afraid. So we're not sleeping together. And I really miss sleeping with my girly, but I got to say, I've been having some great sleep lately without my girly. So, uh, Can I just give a PSA to everyone? Yeah. Um, I think if you're dealing with someone who has health anxiety, don't tell them that the odds of both of us dying and leaving our kid alone are astronomical <laughs> because they are. But I think that that I've learned does not help. So don't even invoke the idea of both of you dying. I just told my girly that, uh, you know, look, these cats can take care of themselves. It's okay. <laughs> Today, flattening the curve has been repeated over and over again as the solution to many of the challenges our healthcare system is going to face in the upcoming weeks, months, and potentially years when it comes to COVID-19. The virus plaguing all of us right now, but the curve is not a very happy place. Flattening the curve means stretching out cases of coronavirus and therefore deaths from COVID-19 far into the future over a longer period of time. Sure, this would lessen demand on the healthcare system, including the workers and supplies that are desperately needed right now to save people's lives. But if too many people get infected and overwhelm the capacity of hospitals and the rest of healthcare, the system and the healthcare workers in that system will be forced into making life or death decisions, as in who lives and who dies. There is another possibility, and that's addressing the issue by simply expanding healthcare capacity, and it may be our only option in ending the pandemic and ending it sooner rather than far later. In a few minutes, we'll speak with strategic management scholar Joshua Gans, who wrote the MIT Press Reader article, Flattening the Coronavirus Curve is Not Enough, and the Toronto Star piece on coronavirus, It's Time to Adopt a Wartime Mentality. Joshua is a professor of strategic management and holder of the Jeffrey S. Skoll Chair of Technical Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Rotman School of Management in the University of Toronto with a cross appointment in the Department of Economics. 
His most recent book is last year's Innovation Plus Equality. Now listen to this subtitle. How to Create a Future That is More Star Trek Than Terminator. Find out more about Joshua at joshuagans.com. Follow Joshua on Twitter at Josh Gans, that's G-A-N-S. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? I know. Uh, there we go. This week's question from hell uh, is, and if you're caught at the beginning of the show, you would know what it is already. The question is, do they owe us a living? <laughs> And I'm looking for one of two answers. <laughs> Do they owe us a living? All right. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct, direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or email it to either of us at chuck at com or alex at com. What does the person with our favorite answer to this week's question win, Alex? Uh, winner of the, or Chuck's favorite uh, receives... A this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, uh, and then I might throw on their uh, every crass album. Oh, really? I don't think they'd get mad about that. I don't think they would either. Th guide guide to the 21st century flash drive, and we're gonna you know, rip every crass album for you. This is not the media. This is hell. Don't forget, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. DM it to us via Twitter or email it to us. Again, this is not the media. This is hell. Although technically, as of right now, we are the press, which allows us to go outside and come and here to do the radio show. So this is not the media. This is hell. But technically, we are the press right now. There's a lot I miss about our lives pre-virus. I miss not being the press. That's one aspect of it. I miss going to the bar and drinking with friends. I miss meeting listeners of the show and talking to them over a beer on Friday nights during the hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge. I miss going out to eat and having food that I can't, cannot make at home. On the other hand, I don't miss all the crappy fast food that I used to eat because home-cooked food is far better, and that junk always screwed up my stomach anyway. Yeah, I know those junk food places are still open because the president wants them open, but I was never really keen on what I assumed were their sanitation protocols, so hell no, I'm not going to those places while there's a freaking pandemic on the loose. I've seen dudes spit on a Wendy's single just because the person at the counter was being a jerk. I miss shaking people's hands, hugging, and even kissing people. I miss the uniquely communal activity of smoking pot with other people. Especially when it's their pot, because more often than not, they have better weed than me. So let me rephrase that. I miss smoking other people's pot. I was recently contacted by an old friend who I smoked pot with in the past from the old neighborhood back in East Detroit. I had reminisced on social media about something. I, I can't remember what it was because I'm rarely, if ever, nostalgic. My past was a nightmare, and wanting to return to it would be a self-imposed torture that I do not want to do to myself. I mean... Self-quarantine's bad enough, but reminiscing and being nostalgic, that's another nightmare altogether. That said, an old friend, let's call him Lou because that's his name, contacted me after something I posted and reminded me of my youth of hanging out with all our crew in a friend's family's basement, playing cards and smoking pot. It was great to hear from Louie. I remember two stories about him. One was that his brother was very excited about getting his first tattoo as soon as, he sh as we showed up to hang out with Louie. He's like, dude, you gotta see my brother's tattoo. His brother wanted a tall ship, a sailing ship, tattooed on his right shoulder blade. His brother lifted his shirt proudly, showed up, showed us the ship, and Louis asked, does it look familiar? 
He then held up a bottle of Old Spice, the old man cologne, and we all realized the artist had used the ship on the bottle as his model for the tattoo. Yes, his brother got a tattoo of the Old Spice sailing ship on his shoulder blade for the rest of his life. He didn't know it was the Old Spice ship. In fact, I still don't know if he ever realized it was the Old Spice ship that was sitting there on his back. The other story that took place while playing cards with Louie, of course, I can't remember where it happened, but wherever it was, I remember we were sitting at the kitchen table playing cards, naturally, and suddenly there was a noise from the driveway as if someone was shaking a chain-link fence. Louis looked out the window, said, shit, somebody's trying to steal my bike, and saw somebody trying to steal his new bicycle, and he grabbed a cast-iron pan, ran out, and the next thing anyone heard was a cartoonish clang of a pan and then a really loud groan. Everyone ran outside to see what had happened and Louis was standing there with a pan in his hand while some guy was stumbling down the sidewalk holding his head. And that's all I remember about Louis. Not much else. When he contacted me out of the blue on social media, I asked if he had heard from the mutual friend who had introduced us and Louis told me that they had a falling out over the nineteen or the 2016 presidential election, the Trump versus Hillary election. Now, it's not spoken to either in decades, so I had no idea of either of their politics. I figured it would play itself out and I would learn who went Trump because that was clearly the implication. This week I posted on my, time, my own timeline, Trump's unity pits states against each other in medical supply bidding, leading to shortages and price gouging. Unity! To which Louis replied, what? With two question marks requesting a source. Myself and others posted articles about how the federal government was actually bidding against states which were bidding against each other to get much needed medical supplies during this time of crisis, jacking up the price of all those medical supplies so gouging can be done easily. I also posted, wouldn't it be great if we had a government that did their job instead of waiting for the private sector to do it for them? To which again, Louis asked, what? Again, with two question marks. This time, nobody answered his piercing question. Then yesterday, still uncertain where Louis' politics lie. Maybe he's a shocked liberal Democrat or an offended Trumpite. I still was uncertain. I posted, how long will we have to wait for the clearly incompetent market to solve COVID-19? As we now know, Trump ain't going to do anything. To which my old, long-lost, and just-found friend from the old neighborhood replied, Goodbye, Chuck. While it's comforting to know which of my old friends went bat Trump crazy, it's also sad to know that something like asking how long will we wait for the clearly incompetent market to solve COVID-19 as we now know Trump ain't going to do anything. How sad it is that that would end a relationship before it ever had a chance to get restarted and then maybe end again. But while it saddened me that an old friend would simply cut me off for good simply for asking a loaded question, I had bigger problems on my mind yesterday following the show. After our conversation yesterday with evolutionary biologist and public health phylogeographer Rob Wallace, who wrote the monthly review article, Notes on a Novel Coronavirus, I was stuck with the question, the existential question that we as lazy and patient Americans should be asking ourselves right now. Which are we? Are we more lazy or impatient. Rob explained that in order for us to have the success China has had in fighting the virus, we're going to have to do all of the intense shelter-in-place protocol China has done if we want to end this thing sooner 
rather than later. That means having outdoor clothes that you take off before entering your home when you put on your indoor clothes, never wear outdoor shoes indoors, disinfecting them with an alcohol or bleach solution every time you wear your outdoor shoes indoors, mopping your entire home with alcohol solution, and it goes on at length, but Americans are pretty lazy, and they're not going to put up with all of that. Uh, or are they more impatient, not being able to wait to go outdoors? For me, I'm impatient more than lazy. And I want this thing to end as soon as possible. So I've gone off the deep end. I take my shoes off outside my place and never bring them in. I disinfect them because I have no idea who's effluent I stepped in or even if I did. I take my coat off outside my home as well as my hat. And starting today, I'm taking off my clothes before entering. And those will be left up front in our secured indoor stairwell. Although I may move everything to our private back porch. I want to do everything now so we can get this over as fast as possible. I know that it's not going to be 15 days. I am hoping that it can be as little as 15 months, but I am growing very impatient to get out. Not that I am indoors that much more now than I was in the past. I am what is known as a homebody, but you when you can't get out of your place, the thought that you're not allowed outdoors, it can be maddening. Look, I can do 15 months. That's going to be tough, but it's it's an easy stretch. Far better than self-imposed lifetime imprisonment or maybe even giving yourself the chair. I'm losing friends. I'm losing my freedom. I'm losing my patience, but so far I'm not losing my life, so I I got that going for me. But still... This is hell coming up on today's show. Flattening the curve ain't what the media is cracking it up to be. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, do they owe us a living? Do they owe us a living? This week's winner gets the This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring 25 interviews from the past 20 years. We are also going to throw on that flash drive every crass album ever because we don't think they would mind. Live from the nightmare, this is Hell. We can fix everything about the virus by flattening the curve, by making it so... There is as little pressure on our healthcare system throughout the pandemic as possible. Or can we? Here to help us get a better grasp of exactly what flattening the curve means, strategic management scholar Joshua Gans wrote the MIT Press Reader article, Flattening the Coronavirus Curve is Not Enough, and the Toronto Star piece on coronavirus, It's Time to Adapt a Wartime Mentality. Welcome to This Is Hell, Josh. Go oh. Thanks for having me. Find out more about Joshua at joshuagans.com. Follow Joshua on Twitter at Josh Gans, as explained last week in an article at Live Science. You also explained it in your article. But at Live Science, they explain in epidemiology the idea of slowing a virus's spread so that fewer people need to seek treatment at any given time is known as flattening the curve. It explains why so many countries are implementing social distancing guidelines, including a shelter-in-place order. The curve takes on different shapes depending on the virus's infection rate. 
It could be a steep curve in which the virus spreads exponentially, that is, case counts keep doubling at a consistent rate, and the total number of cases skyrockets to its peak within a few weeks. Infection curves with a steep rise also have a steep fall after the virus infects pretty much everyone who can be infected. Case numbers begin to drop off exponentially, too. The faster the inf- infection curve rises, the quicker the local healthcare system gets overloaded beyond its capacity to treat people. A flatter curve, on the other hand, assumes the same number of people ultimately get affected, but over a longer period of time. A slower infection rate means a less stressed healthcare system, fewer hospital visits on any given day, and fewer sick people being turned away. You've been studying the curve. Do you know what the current state of the curve is, either globally or here in the United States or in Canada? Keeping in mind that, as epidemiologist Rob Wallace explained yesterday, the virus doesn't know borders. Yeah, so um, it seems to be different between countries. Uh, in um, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, and China, uh, the 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 curve has has been uh, flattened uh, as much as anywhere. Uh, in uh, Canada, the United States, Australia, uh, there's no such sign. Um, in fact, the United States uh, is. Uh, is having a very rapid expansion in the in the number of cases beyond what even people thought, I think, uh, given the lack of testing going on. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, there are some countries where there's been some mitigation and seems to be successful, it seems to be happening. Uh, but, you know, most of the places are not out of the woods. So will shelter in place? Will social distancing, will these uh, prophylaxis, will these uh, quarantines, will these uh, simple behavior modifications, to what degree do you think that they will have an impact on flattening the curve in the United States? Or have you seen any kind of impact that they've had globally that might be reflected in the U.S.? I think they will uh, have an impact. Uh, it, It appears, for instance, from Italy, which uh, is the sort of latecomer model that we <laughs> all look to currently, uh, uh, that um, staying in place, uh, a lockdown, um, has uh, started to cause the rate of new cases to, to start to drop. Um, what that means is that, you know, it's perhaps a month, eight weeks, 10 weeks, uh, and you can and you can see the the infection uh, rates go down to to something that might seem manageable. There are a couple of things that we we don't know about that. One is, of course, um, you know, uh, some of these countries, you know, uh, Britain, uh, Canada, uh, uh, Italy, and others uh, had taken very strong routes to ensure that people were staying uh, in place, including. Penalties and in some in some uh, cases, you know, tracking people on their smartphones and things like that. In the the United States, it's my understanding uh, currently that you know there's not a lot of enforcement going on. Uh, in some jurisdictions, uh, such as New York and and previously in Seattle, uh, that was taking place, and and I think Seattle's starting to uh, Washington State is starting to see the uh, dividends from that. But, you know, so that's a big unknown. Uh, it's a big unknown as to whether the United States can enforce or have a stay-in-place order uh, that works enough. Um, the second part, and this is an unknown for everybody, 
is whether uh, there will be uh, future outbreaks uh, come the fall. Uh, the, one of the uh, issues associated with stopping the spread of infection it means, of course, as we wanted, fewer people to be infected. Uh, but that means that people are still vulnerable for this virus coming back. And we do not know at this stage whether that might happen. In the Toronto Star article that you wrote on coronavirus, it's time to adopt a wartime mentality. You write, the problem is that even with aggressive social distancing, no one really believes that this will be enough to prevent our healthcare system from reaching capacity. We may run out of hospital beds, ventilators, or healthcare workers first. Italy had a well-resourced universal healthcare system, and that didn't prevent hospitals from having to limit resources and make heart-wrenching triage decisions and those are decisions based on life and death. During the Democratic presidential nomination debate, Joe Biden said that Italy's universal health care program, not stopping coronavirus, proves that Bernie Sanders' plan for Medicare for all would not work either. Is Italy worse off with COVID-19 because of their universal health care system? Uh, I think I think uh, uh, the the margin of difference between health care systems uh, is not uh, you know this is so much bigger than that uh, and I think um, it is also that you know there are some some features of that I mean I wouldn't like to be a person who felt that they could not go to a hospital because they were going to get become bankrupt in a time like this and that's so that also is bad for everybody because that means infected people walk around longer and things like that so uh that there there is a discussion of that and we should also remember that in every almost every country but the united states the flu of 1918 was the reason uh they ended up having universal health care that said right now that's not the big issue in terms of capacity. There's some differences between healthcare systems in terms of how many hospital beds they have. South Korea, 12 per uh, uh, twelve per um, thousand people. Uh, United States, two um, or two to three. Uh, so that's a big difference. There's a difference in ICU beds, which are the ones that provide the ventilators uh, between countries. There, the United States, I think, does uh, somewhat better on a per capita basis than other places. Uh, but the problem is that the scale of this is so large that uh, it doesn't matter which uh, hospital uh, system you have or healthcare system you have. If you didn't squash the virus pretty much on day one or two or three of an outbreak, uh, the numbers of cases that arise 14 a month, um, uh, six weeks later, uh, will exceed the capacity of the healthcare system. And as you look around the United States, those capacities are very different in different areas as well. Uh, so it's really, really uh, a major constraint. So one of the reasons that I wrote my uh, article was because flattening the curve, yes, you want to do it to reduce that uh, overcapacity on the healthcare system. But the difference between the um, number of people who you expected to get sick and that capacity was so large that it seemed to me that the policies should be also directed at increasing that capacity by many fold, if only temporarily. 
on that capacity, you offer a chart of 40 different niches and their uh, hospital beds per thousand people. Far and away, the two leading countries on that chart are South Korea and Japan. The United States is 32nd out of the 40 countries listed, and unbelievably, for me at least, because everybody here has a skewed opinion of the Canadian healthcare system, unbelievably, the Canadian healthcare system is 36th below yeah. the United States, yeah. both, both at about a little bit over two beds per thousand people. Yes. So when it comes to economics, what explains, or maybe you have another explanation in some other discipline, what explains the amount, the incredibly high amount of beds, twice as much as the number three country that you see in South Korea and, J and Japan, yet you have a nation that supposedly has a kind of universal health care system in Canada, which has even fewer beds than the United States has. You know, it's uh, it doesn't matter which health care system you have, in order to provision for outbreaks and to have extra capacity, you've got to put money towards it. Uh, um, Canada, you know, runs a fairly economical healthcare system. Um, so, you know, so long as we in normal times are dealing with things that are okay, uh, you know, that's been deemed fine. But the problem is, of course, these are normal times. Um, in the United States, the tragedy is actually uh, worse than that because the United States spends so much more per capita on healthcare than any other country. Um, and so, you know, really it's an issue. They're not getting banged for the buck. Uh, it should have more health hospital beds. It should have more of these things. Uh, that was the whole point of that system. Uh, but it, does, it, it doesn't. Um, I think actually if you adjusted for the people who uh, have the kind of healthcare health insurance plans that could pay for the hospital beds. Uh, it looks a bit better. <laughs> so in Canada, this is for everybody. Uh, in the United States, there are tens of millions of people uninsured. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> they've, they've made a different set of decisions there. Um, so the problem is that, is that um, while we, this is the alarm, that people like Bill Gates and a lot of other people before it, Larry Brilliant and so forth, have been saying is that, you know, a pandemic is going to come. It's only a matter of time. Uh, and it's no coincidence that the countries that have had pandemics in the last 20 years are the ones with the most hospital beds. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. Uh, and also with the best response, etc. And the ones that haven't uh, are left wanting. Um, you know, that is something once this is all over, we might want to work out how to change. But the immediate problem right now is you need to dramatically ramp up that because, you know, no matter how much you grumble about staying at home, et cetera, now, that becomes far, far worse if you are, have people getting ill and they're not confident of being able to get treatment. You're right that there are two big challenges. One, we need to minimize the short term, this year's cost of the pandemic. And two, we need to minimize the medium term after this year's cost of the pandemic. Not surprisingly, the two are in conflict with one another. How are the short term and the medium term goals in conflict with one another? And what's the outcome of that conflict? I think the, sh the short term, you know, it is expensive to take to to dramatically increase healthcare capacity right now, um, that that takes a, a lot of effort. 
you know, you, for instance, you have to retool manufacturing plants to uh, be able to make ventilators. And in order for that to happen, governments have to commit to uh, purchasing them uh, because why would you why would you do it for any other reason? Uh, so that is a that requires a level of command and control that we're just not used to. We're just not used to. Uh, we we tend to do these things on a more business uh, usual basis, not doing things too quickly, etc. Now, the issue is, and of course, any solution we have is not going to be the long term solution. If we ramp up and we build some stuff now, put in makeshift hospitals, etc., it's not what we're going to want to. You know, then we put it all back into storage and we can use it again. Chances are they're not going to have the quality for that. <laughs> they're not going to have the life of the capital equipment. So it really is very much a a, a, a immediate problem. Um, one of good news that it, it seems to me is uh, countries, including the US and Canada, have organizations that can rapidly expand medical treatment capacity, and, and that is uh, the military. The armed forces, you know, uh, have to have capabilities to be able to do that. Now, the puzzle for me is why when people are thinking of the costs of all this, etc., hasn't that um, program, that ability, been been pushed forward? Uh, there are some discussions of that going on, but it isn't talked about in a way that. Remember, I talked about this confidence problem that people would believe it's all going to be okay and they're going to be able to get a bed or things like that, and that still strikes me as as a puzzle. Do you think that people are just fearful of the military being in charge of this, fearful of seeing so many people in uniforms at, you know, temporary hospitals or wherever the situation is? Just seeing too many military people might be so demoralizing that who knows what could happen with the public? You know, I you know, that that is a, a theory. But in, uh, you know, this wouldn't be the case if somebody was invading. <laughs> And really, that's what we have. <laughs> uh, an invasion by a microbial alien species. Uh, what better way to think about that uh, as being able to take uh, the fight to them? So, you know, look, hell, I would just like to see, uh, let's do it in New York. Uh, let's do it in Toronto. And if the public get extra nervous, then we'll, we've learned something. <laughs> you explain that the mentality of everyone is yeah. to move to a war footing, especially from governments. We have seen a glimpse of this from China in dealing with short-term costs, but we need to worry about long-term cost as well. What is the impact a war footing has on long-term cost? Is this the focus on the, the kind of prophylaxis and quarantines without any consideration of more structural issues what what happens when we uh when we focus on uh, a war footing does it make us ignore the long-term cost well i think i think it does to an extent i think that you know you make a lot of you have to do things quickly then stuff happens and you'll say i wish we hadn't done that <laughs> and it's part of the whole process and you know political processes and other things are not very forgiving for mistakes um, for instance, you know, people were running around now, and, and, and I don't think this is a good idea, sort of talking about all sorts of treatments and miracle cures and whatever, a lot, a lot of hope going on and saying, oh, we should abandon our normal processes. 
Um, on those, you know, I'd worry about that because I think the normal processes are there for a reason. I'm sure we could get a lot, get get rid of a lot of uh, red tape and things like that, but there's still some method to the madness. So we we want to be careful about that. But when it comes to uh, and when it comes to building up hospital capacity, we've got that as well. You know, there's a sort of still a liability system layered on the <laughs> on the United States uh, healthcare system, which is partly responsible for its higher cost. Um, and that is going to, uh, you know, that's going to be a concern. That's going to be a concern to doctors. It's going to be a concern to, to others, uh, you know, trying to work in conditions that are way beyond uh, standards they would normally do. So I think I think that creates a mess. And the only way around that is to just have somebody who's willing to say, this is how it's going to be. None of that stuff is going to matter. And we're going to get the job done. Um, and I think, you know, I you watch uh, some national leaders and, you know, they take a little time and by a little time, matter of days, which is actually incredibly fast as these things go. And they start to get more resolute. You can see it sort of Macron. You saw it with uh, Boris Johnson. I think we're seeing uh, some of that with Justin Trudeau, basically saying nothing else matters. We're going to do this thing. It's a wartime mentality. And, you know, if I have to push people around and, and do things that would otherwise be an infringement of liberty, so be it. Um, and I think uh, that that is the hard jump. That's the hard jump for people to take. I don't think since World War II, major democracies have not done that. Uh, and we live in a very different connected world with all sorts of other things going on now. So that is a big ask. So President Trump has said that he now feels like a wartime president, despite the fact that his country's been at war the entire time he's been president of the United States. Suddenly, he now feels like a wartime president. In his actions, do you think he is acting like a wartime president when it comes to addressing COVID-19? No. I mean, uh, and I'll say very plainly, um, regardless of what you um, think about it, he, a wartime president president has one job. They have to be absolutely resolute about the priorities. So there are two things going on here. There's a public health crisis and then there's an associated economic crisis. In order to defeat the public, in order to get out of this, real things have to happen. The economy can't get to normal if we have a public health crisis hanging over us. <laughs> it just can't happen. It's, you know, uh, either we do nothing about it and people just die and we the electricity go down and all sorts of things like that, or alternatively we do, okay? But what that requires is for everybody to understand what the priority is. And in a, if it is a wartime presidency, the priority is fighting the war. The priority is fighting the war. And none of the, the rhetoric coming out of that is suggesting that will be the case. None of it. Uh, whereas if you compare it, for instance, to Boris Johnson, just this, you know, the last few days, there is a resoluteness there uh, that is what you want to see. And then you want to see that backed up with all the actions <laughs> to support it as well. You write that. You write, I'm sorry. Yeah, it has to start there. Yeah. Uh, you write that there are costs to this policy of flattening the curve, which must be traded off against the benefits. First, flattening the curve extends the short term disruption. 
a.k.a. how long social distancing must take place and the consequent disruption to life and work. Hence, there will be a recession, a downturn in economic activity, not because of some somewhat mysterious financial force that we usually have, but instead because we have chosen to reduce economic activity. That is actually good news. For once, this is a recession that economics knows how to deal with and agree with one another. It isn't controversial, but as usual, it is challenging to get politicians to adapt the policies. How can a recession be good news when it comes to a pandemic? Can we save people and save the economy? Well, uh, the recession is not good news. So there's two recessions. There's the recession we choose to have in order to flatten the curve. And there's the recession that if we don't flatten the curve, that we would have. Uh, I've called that elsewhere the dark recession. Okay, the, the dark recession, so what's a recession? A recession is a drop in economic activity. There are two ways you can get a drop in active, economic activity. You can run out of supply of people and equipment and other things to be able to produce stuff. Or alternatively, you can decide you're not going to spend as much on things. Okay, the dark recession is when we run out of supplies for things. <laughs> we run out of inputs. We run out of people. <laughs> you know, we run out of supply chains, everything like that. It's a very, very dark recession. Okay, it's the sort of recession you have because you're, you've you've gone to war and and people have destroyed a whole lot of people and a whole lot of buildings and a whole lot of infrastructure. In this case, it's more the people, but it's still the same thing. That would be terrible. So the reason we have to have a recession now is not is to avoid that dark recession. And the recession we have now is sort of simpler. We basically say, okay, we're not going to spend as much on a whole lot of stuff. Um, we're sort of technically we're shifting our spending around a bit, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of stuff. Now, that's a terrifying prospect because if you were a small business owner, or if you own an airline, uh, or anything like, or anything, um, um, all of a sudden your customers are gone, <laughs> and they're gone for some period of time. And, you know, if this were ordinary times, what, what would happen is you, you, you may go bankrupt and out of business. So the reason why it's good news is the normal times we, normal recessions, to the extent there's such a thing, we're normally happy to let firms go out of business because, you know, we're not sure that they sort of deserve to be in. It might have been mistakes, they over leveraged, all sorts of other crap like that. This time we know exactly why. They're going out of business for no fault of their own. So it's much easier for us to say, well, we should stop that from happening. <laughs> there might be some restaurant somewhere that was on the edge uh, that gets the benefit, but we should stop it from happening. We should give out money, loans, liquidity, subsidized wages, all those things uh, to basically uh, pause the economy in place so that we can start it again uh, later and everybody knows where they need to go. Uh, so that's uh, so. I don't think the recession is good news, but I think it's good news relative to other recessions. Uh, there is a plan. We can enact that plan. It's a pretty good plan. Some countries are already doing that plan. It'd be nice if all countries could do it. It has so many zeros in the numbers that people can't even contemplate it, and that's the that's the challenge at the moment. But the alternative looks too bleak. 
You write, everyone marveled at China's quick construction of hospitals. As you point out, you advocate for increasing capacity as quickly as possible. You write how you heard, wow, we can't do that. And this was mostly from the healthcare industry, whose basic message for years is now is how hard it is to provide more. They have had expansion beaten out of them by years of a scarcity mindset. Can the healthcare industry, the for-profit healthcare industry, on its own, build the capacity we need? No, I, I think it's not what you uh, have them do, which is partly why I think about military conversion. I mean, if you, there's been some good speeches by you know the chief of the army. Uh, and others about this, about how they would do it. I mean, basically they're saying, well, no one's traveling. These hotels are vacant. We can take them over in a matter of days, convert them over to to beds with ICU units. And then we can also in part staff them. And then we can call up retired healthcare professionals to come in and staff them. We can uh, get um, medical students who would otherwise face a liability from practicing. But let's face it, if you're one year out of a, a, a medical degree or a nursing degree, you're probably okay to be <laughs> doing this sort of stuff. And it, you can get it done. The private healthcare system can't do it. There's not going to be an obvious, the payment, who's going to pay for this is 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 not going to be answerable. Um, it's much easier for the government to come in I would think in most places and with them through the through the military. It's and moreover, in many respects, it's just saying, okay, we should do this and saying go. You write that building out that capacity requires a new mindset and it requires it quickly. The great news is that we, and by we, I mean the generation who were adults in World War II, have done this before. Entire economies were shifted over to military production. This was done by abandoning market processes of resource allocation and moving to a planned economy. Now, President Trump has actually enacted or invoked the Korean War era Defense Production Act, but he hasn't actually employed it. He hasn't implemented it yet at all. He's signed it off, but he hasn't actually gone through the process of changing over, say, asking factories to start building or making N95 masks instead of making cars. And a lot of these different corporations have said that they're willing to do this. They're just waiting for the order from the president of the United States. Is First of all, uh, Trump says that this is nationalizing the economy. That's why he's not so crazy about the Defense Production Act. Is the Defense Production Act, is that kind of relationship with corporations, between government and corporations, is that akin to, in any way, similar to nationalization? Sure. <laughs> so does that, is, does, is that a good enough excuse, do you think, when it comes to a Republican conservative mindset that we shouldn't do this because it would upend all of their ideological processes? No. I mean, you know, look, basically, if you're saying that now, you would have said it in World War II. Ah, you know, uh, the United States is being attacked, but, but let's make sure that, you know, uh, you know, our businesses can, you know, exercise their choice over whether to build a tank or another automobile for the public. I mean, you know, that's just, 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 uh, you know, that ideology, I don't know what ideology that is <laughs> that, that gets you to that point. Uh, that just seems crazy because we also know from our experience there is that it's not like you did that and then you ended up with, with communism forever. Okay. Countries all over the world did that, and then the war was over, and everything you know went back. The government was no longer telling people what to do, etc., uh, etc. Et 
So uh, you know, it's a, it, it is a it is a view that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't pay attention to history. It certainly doesn't pay pay attention to the basic economics of this. You're right. Let's face it. It'll it'll take some time. China impressively did this in a couple of weeks. That will be hard to beat. However. What would Italy have given to have started doing this a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks prior to your writing? Right. And now we have President Trump saying his new campaign, 15 days to stop the spread. What happens, in your opinion, if we do not meet that goal, if it continues to spread after 15 days? Because every epidemiologist is saying that there is no way it's going to be stopped after 15 days. What happens when we are disappointed at those 15 days? You know, there's an Onion cartoon where mother is willing to do anything uh, for their child so long as it can be done in a five-mile radius. And, you know, that's what the two-weeks thing is. Where's two weeks is? Two weeks is, is, is something you're pulling out of uh, whatever. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, it doesn't come from any science or anything like that. Uh, it's just two weeks. It's saying, yeah, well, well that's not resolute. <laughs> or anything like that. We don't know how long it's required. We we know that, in fact, it's it's really awful because basically you can lock down a country and it takes two weeks for these even to show a sign that it's working. You know, people don't, you know, that's not, that's not great <laughs> for everybody's psychology. Um, but that's what, that's what we know. And so you, you don't want to uh, stop this in two weeks because you said you were going to stop it in two weeks. Because you only have it re-emerging again, and then what? You have to stop it when uh, you know uh, the experts in the field think uh, that it is done, that the job has been done. And at the moment, we don't know how long that is. At the moment, we don't know how successful it is. We should thank goodness that there are countries who are ahead of us showing us what the future looks like. And thus far, the future for us, uh, and uh, has been predicted very, very well by those countries. So we can, we can get a bit of a window. That should make us more resolute, not less resolute. Is the best way then to address COVID-19 to build uh, capacity through a planned economy? And when considering the severity of the situation, is it the only way we can build capacity enough to fulfill demand? In other words, so people don't die because there is no medical service. Do all nations right now need to switch to planned economies if we really want to stop COVID-19 as fast as we possibly can? Even in World War II, not everything became a planned economy. Where you want the planned economy is where you have expected big shortages. And at the moment, where we're expecting the big shortages is going to be in healthcare provision. And so you want to have a mindset to be able to close those shortages as much as possible. Uh, And the only way you're going to be able to do it now is by command and control. Uh, There just doesn't seem to be another way of doing it. You know, the normal reasons we object to that is that we don't know, you know, the market is better at judging what people really want. They don't apply. We don't need the market to judge what people want. Uh, If we decide that we want to have a healthy society, we know exactly what we want. (laughs) 
Yesterday, we were speaking with Rob Wallace, the epidemiologist, and he wrote something that I never got a chance to ask him about, and that was this. Rob argues the failure to address structural problems can render these emergency interventions ineffectual, prophylaxis and quarantine aim to push pathogen populations below what is called the alley threshold, the point at which infections may burn out on their own, unable to find new susceptibles. And it is set by structural causes. Can we end the COVID-19 crisis with N95 masks, social distancing, washing our hands, wearing latex gloves, keeping our clothes outside our homes, whatever we need to do without addressing any bigger, more structural issues? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a couple of issues associated with what one is, you know, um, you know, in principle, those practices can do a lot of good. They've done a lot of good in, in Japan, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, this is what people, uh, do, but you know, uh, let's face it. Some societies are more equipped to be able to <laughs> engage in that sort of behavior than others. Uh, it's, it's just a, it, it's just the way it is. Um, is it enough? Don't, don't, I don't know that either. The problem is, and I suspect that this is the case, is that all the actions here we're talking about have all come a bit too late. Uh, the problem is that, you know, every uh, day you wait to do stuff increases the total amount of infections by 40%. That's, you know, that's just, that's just hugely uh, costly. So, no, I don't, I don't think we have, uh, you know, it's going to, it's not going to be pretty. The question is whether it's catastrophic. Some are arguing on social media that you can, I mentioned this before, you can save the economy or you can save the people. And there are those who are arguing that the economy, globalization, policies like austerity, are what at least contributed to the rise of COVID-19. So should we be trying to save the economy as it stood before COVID-19 outbreak because it may have created the environment for COVID-19 outbreak? Oh, I don't think, I don't, th I, I mean, I don't think you can sort of say the economy created the environment for COVID-19. Um, I think, I think this was something that was, uh, has been a risk since we became a, a more integrated uh, world society. And, and, you know, as uh, near as I can tell, that's been for a, a very, very long time. Uh, I, I think there are issues with, uh, you know, uh, prioritizing the economy versus health, health uh, care. Uh, you know, there is a view that I've seen bandied around in the last few days by uh, people in authority uh, saying that, uh, well, maybe the economy is the thing and we should just accept the deaths of large numbers of uh, particularly the elderly. Uh, that just seems, uh, you know, morally abhorrent to me. Uh, I don't know what making that choice does to a society. It seems to me that saying there is a threat, dealing with the threat, and then afterward the threat trying to restore things to where they were while being mindful that you don't want this to happen again is what we've often done in the past and we should do again. 
One last question for you. We've been speaking with strategic management scholar Joshua Gans, who wrote the MIT Press Reader article, Flattening the Coronavirus Curve is Not Enough, in the Toronto Star piece on coronavirus. It's time to adopt a wartime mentality. Joshua is chief economist at the University of Toronto's Creative Destruction Lab. Joshua's often, uh, Joshua's, sorry, most recent book is last year's Innovation Plus Equality, How to Create a Future that is More Star Trek Than Terminator. Find out more about Joshua at joshuagans.com. Follow Joshua on Twitter at Josh Gans. Josh, one of our last question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You point out that you want to have us on a war footing when we are addressing the coronavirus. But I got to admit, Josh, I am anti-war. I don't like war. My dad was in the military and cleverly avoided fighting. And he explained to me, you never want to go to war. He was a huge Republican, voted against George W. Bush, though, because he thought the Iraq war was unnecessary. And you don't want to go to war if you can avoid it. On the other hand, he was supporting every other war, even supported the war in Granada. So for someone who was queasy about war and more into peace, why is it important for those people who are peace activists? Why is it important to use the word war? I uh, used it for two reasons. One is to... uh, give a sense of the urgency. I feel it is a war on the microbes uh, in, in that sense, and there's no diplomatic solution, so it's different from normal wars. The second was to understand that we couldn't, uh, that it was different, that sort of business as usual, processes of usual weren't going to cut it. And, you know, at least uh, during wartime, uh, whether you wanted to be in the war or not, uh, we abandon that. If your goal is to fight the war, you have to abandon that. And so, you know, I don't like using that. I don't like blanketly when, you know, who knows what the consequences are saying, perhaps we should trust the military on this. But, you know, we're kind of out of options. <laughs> That's the really good point that I think that you make is that the uh, the sad state, the sad fact that we're out of options. Why are we out of options anyway, Josh? What do you What explains that being out of options? I think we didn't prepare. This is not the only thing we haven't prepared for. The risk of pandemic was has been going on for ages. People thought it was just a matter of time. We had some uh, scares previously. Some countries were hit more than others. There's, there's no accident that the countries that were hit by SARS and H1N1 and MERS, you know, were better prepared. The problem is having a few countries better prepared is not enough. Everybody has to be better prepared. Do you think this is going to make us better prepared? Do you think that after this is over, Canada is going to be better prepared, the United States is going to be better prepared, and we're going to have more than two beds, two hospital beds per thousand people? I'm in complete... I I don't know. I know the romantic narrative is, of course, we we do. Uh, But, you know, we've been through financial crises and other things. We seem to make the same mistakes over and over again. And we're not going to be sort of jumping up and down to uh, n- necessarily protect ourselves <laughs> and spend and plan and what other things are uh, done for that after this uh, whole thing is, is done. I mean, let's not forget, it took two world wars to get the United Nations. 
<laughs> That's a good point. All right, Joshua. Yeah, that League of Nations one really worked out great. Uh, Josh, I really appreciate you being on the show. I really appreciate your perspective. We've been speaking with strategic management scholar Joshua Gans, who wrote the MIT Press article, Flattening the Coronavirus Curve is Not Enough, and the Toronto Star piece on coronavirus. It's time to adopt a wartime mentality. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I truly appreciate it. No worries. Thanks. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is Hal. This week's question from Hal is, do they owe us a living? Do they owe us a living? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hal at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer this week wins the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive, which includes 25 interviews from the first 20 years of this century. And as Alex was pointing out, I guess we can't go to the post office. So if any of you are missing a book that we have sent to you or that you won during the question from hell, if you are missing a question from hell prize, we will be sending those out as soon as we possibly can. But yeah, we got to start sending out smaller gifts so we don't have to go to the post office. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, uh, yeah, there we go. Sorry. This week's question from hell is, do they owe us a living? Mitchell C. says, of course they fucking do. <laughs> it's uh, one of the two correct responses. Nathaniel R. says... And I think this, the syntax is correct. Too. Nathaniel R. says, of course they fucking do. <laughs> Nick A. says... Oh, yeah, of course they do. <laughs> Fucking A. Oh, sorry, split your old-fashioned dur. Uh, I'll take a fit, partial credit for that one. Mm. Walter M. says, a living is a human right. Of course they owe us a living. Close enough. Benjamin <laughs> C. says, how can they owe us if they own us? That's a good one. Now, that's a good one. <laughs> it's not one of the two answers that I was expecting. And finally, Gogs E. says, nice choice. Think I first heard that on Bullshit Detector as an impressionable 14-year-old. The answer is, of course, they owe us all. <laughs> 14-year-old? I didn't. My dad didn't let me have a bullshit detector until I was 16. Tune into tomorrow's streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time. This is Hal at thisishell.com. Or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to hear more of your answers to this week's question from Hell. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show? Uh, we're excited about this. One of our favorite guests, Max Haven, is back on to talk about his piece, no Return to Normal for a Post-Pandemic Liberation that's posted over right now at uh, RoarMag.org. And uh, it's a late, uh, what's the end part of your book called? Afterward. Afterward. It's an afterward. It's an afterward to his new book that is coming out in May that uh, we're going to probably bug him about again if uh, we make it that far. But I want to talk to him now. So we're talking to him now about his new piece. Uh, go over to RoarMag.org. You don't have the title for his new book in front of you, do you? Uh, hold on, let me pull it up. I'm kind of curious because Max is always Revenge better. Capitalism, I think it's called. Oh, really? That's uh, good. Hold on a second. Um, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unplayable Debts. Did you see Mark Blythe has co-authored a new book? We just got a copy of it the other day. It's called Angry Nomics. Oh, damn. I'll show it to you after that. I'll, I'll send you the press link and stuff because we don't want to get anywhere near each other right now. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing this week's show and thanks to Josh Gans, our guest. By the way, I liked how the question from hell, or the pre question from hell, was, you know, that the economy had a role in contributing to the, uh, you know, 
COVID-19. And he said no at the beginning, but by the end, he had totally agreed with the question. I was was kind of confused by his response to the pre-question from hell. Ah, but what are you going to do? I'm pretty confused on a regular basis. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.